bum bum bottom 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 bum
made me forcibly look at myself and oh, no. face some of my personal demons no, no. in a way. One should never compare themselves to Tom Cruise, Lisa. Uh, you know, I have opened the closet of like my um, inner sanctum and in there is um, uh, an an imposter, an imposter no, syndrome. No, 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 I don't like that at all. I don't like that at all. That's not the point of the Tom Cruise-a-thon. The, the point of the Tom Cruise-a-thon was to watch somebody who started out in endless love with like a five-minute sequence, uh, and he's awful in it. He's terrible. And you get to watch him, you know, as you said, you know, fold himself upon himself like steel and develop a personality and a character that does not change from like cocktail on. And I do think that we should record a Patreon episode about our Tom Cruise experience once we're all done. We have like just a handful of movies left. And I think there's a, a really interesting conversation to be had there about personality, character, performance with the Tom Cruise career that would be pretty interesting to discuss. I was shook by his performance in Rock of Ages. <laughs> Which is what we just finished, yes. He, like, his posture in that film is so overtly sexual that it made me uncomfortable. It's a wretchedly terrible movie, but I think he's amazing he in it. He commits a thousand percent as he does to all things, which is why I think he continues to get opportunities because people want someone who's going to be on board with their project. Well, that's project. the thing. He chases filmmakers who are of um, serious standing, and if you look at his career, like he makes sure that he hits up Scorsese and Oliver Stone and Brian De Palma and Steven Spielberg. And, you know, it just keeps on going. Like he is trying to better himself. And that's that's the fascinating thing about the Tom Cruise. -thon. I do worry that right now Douglas Volk is listening to the introduction of his episode and he is hearing us talk about Tom Cruise incessantly. And to and to Douglas Volk, I apologize. We are going to get into your book real soon. But I do think that there is a, a common thread between Douglas Volk and Tom Cruise. The, yes, in that yes. Douglas Volk is also an individual who commits. Yes, I was hoping way, you were going there. In a way that I envy and admire. Yeah, and I'm also a little scared by. Yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> uh, All the Marvels is an amazing gimmick, as he will call it. Mm -hmm. uh, this idea of like, okay, I'm going to attempt to read every single Marvel Universe comic book from 1961 on. And that sounds like an insane thing, but it is something that I admire greatly as an obsessive and as a fan of this universe and to read his process for doing it and then to hear the life lessons that he extracts from the Marvel universe is so incredibly inspiring. I think that this is, and I, I tell this to him at the end of the interview, to you know, to his face, to his Zencaster link. I, I think it is an, a, a heroic act of fandom. This is what I would like to see more people like us do with this sponge knowledge that we have accumulated over our lifetimes to make sense of it. It's really beautiful. And make sense of it for yourself. I love that he opens the book by saying like, 
I am not trying to create anything definitive. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not saying that this is the right way to read comics, and I'm not even saying that I'm a better fan because I have done this. In fact, you should not do what I have done. I think that, like, in the beginning of the book, he continues to make the comparison to, like, this is, like, the Kilimanjaro of comic books, Mm -hmm. where it's, like, it is insane, unsupportable, (laughs) and unsafe to do this, but I did it anyway, and... Um, Here's what I'm bringing down from the mountain, my thoughts on it. Exactly. Yeah, and so this is very much a memoir uh, as it is an experiment, as it is a gimmick, as it is an achievement. But I don't think Douglas Volk knows that. I, I don't, well, I mean, we. I, it's, it's interesting, you know, how we approach his book versus how he approached his book, and that's what this conversation's about, and I think that's what we get out of it. Uh, I'm, I'm really thrilled to have him on the show. I, I highly encourage all of our lis- listeners to read the book. Now, this conversation's not going to spoil uh, the book in really any way. You know, we talk about a few things that he brings up here and there throughout the memoir, uh, but I think you can listen to this conversation and still then go back and read the book and get a lot out of it. But I do think that everyone listening would benefit as comic book readers yourselves uh, purchasing all the Marvels. Th- this is one of my favorite reading experiences that I had this year in 2021. And we also did listen to the audiobook. Yes. And we recommend doing the double fisted one hand holding the book, the other hand um, pressed to your ear listening to the audiobook, just because uh, the audiobook is read by the author. And he does a great job doing it. He's a podcaster himself. He knows how to put an audio program together. And I feel like having the author read a nonfiction book, you do get another layer of understanding just right. be, by the inflection of his voice. Right, like if they hired Peter Weller, let's say, to read this book, Peter Weller would uh, gain a different meaning from the text. Yes, yeah, yes. In his performance. Yeah, absolutely true. I hadn't really thought about that until we were talking about it on our car ride back from Baltimore Comic-Con, uh, which is how we consumed the audiobook. But once we were done with the audiobook, I did go back and like, go to my favorite passages in the book itself and reread them. Mm-hmm, yes. Yeah. So uh, we're huge fans of all the, all of the Marvels and uh, I'm, I'm excited for all of you to listen to this conversation. I think it's a really fabulous chat. Um, I want to hear from you after you hear this conversation, what you think about all of this uh, and what your own approach to your fandom is and to Marvel comics and your philosophy behind the Marvel universe. I want to hear all that stuff too. So let us know, please. And also, I do want to hear what your favorite Tom Cruise movies and why is it collateral? And also, happy Halloween. <laughs> and happy Halloween, guys. Here's Douglas Woke. I say Volk. Uh, well, I mean, I didn't, I didn't bother looking up N- the Neither did I. Nor did I ask him. Yep, rude. Douglas, thank you so much for joining us in the love nest of comic book couples counseling today. We are so excited to talk all the marvels with you. Thank you so much. Nice to be here. Now... The where I want to start with this conversation is how you go out of your way in the book to tell your reader, this was an insane thing that I did, and I would <laughs> not recommend it to anyone. And yeah. then when you go on and do interviews with folks like us, you go, yeah, this is a little bit of a stunt. It's a crazy thing that I did, but this is what I did. What I'm surprised by is not only how much 
the book resonates with folks like Lisa and myself, you know, comic book nerds, comic book nerds. But when I tell my dad about this book, when I talk to my friends who aren't comic book readers, they're all interested in it. Are you as the author surprised by the wide range of people who seem interested in wanting to join you on this mad climb up the Marvel mountain? I'm delighted by it. Uh, yeah. I mean, this this is what I hoped for. Um, and part of the reason that it took so long to write is that I, it took a while to figure out how to make it more inviting and friendlier and more entertaining on its own. It my, my first stab at it did not come out the way I wanted to, so I ended up like. I talked about this a few places, like scrapping about 90% of it and just rewriting the whole thing. Um, and that's, that's what I needed to do. Uh, and I'm so glad that people are liking it. I actively fear other comic book nerds, like coming in and like correcting me. And so I get bogged down by this obsessive taking of notes. And I'm just wondering, like, as you were reading, were you keeping these documents of record as you went and were you taking notes? I was kind of sort of taking notes, but the notes I were take, was taking were, uh, I had a, I had a Tumblr, actually I had two Tumblrs. Uh, one of the Tumblrs was just anytime I hit something that in, was interesting or I wanted to hold on to, I'd just like clip a panel and stick it there and make, make a hashtag and noticing patterns, noticing trends like that was just my little personal scrapbook for keeping track of it. Uh, and occasionally after a while I'd be like, yeah, okay, I've got like 15 examples of this thing. Let's see what, let's see what that looks mm -hmm. like as a pattern. Uh, the other one was one that was suggested by Sterling, which my son, which was just, uh, anytime somebody said bah, marvelbah.tumblr.com. It's just hundreds of panels of people going bah. <laughs> The closest I come to feats of media consumption is like when I go to film festivals and you like I'll watch like 20 movies in like three or four days. And then I'll have like this beautiful mind thing where I go like, I can't believe I saw four movies with talking crustaceans in it. Like you just notice like, <laughs> bizarre. Like, did you besides bot, did you find other like bizarre and meaningless connections in comics that didn't make it into the book? Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, th there's uh, there's a zillion panels that are just giant panoramas of Times Square. Mm -hmm. There are one thing I kept track of was times when modern art and contemporary art showed up within the story. Um, mm. There was a, a, a little phenomenon called "Fortunately They Survived," which I called in my head, which is just any time that there's a panel that is obviously a whole people, a whole bunch of people getting killed, and that there's a caption explaining, like, "Oh, actually, they managed to parachute out at the last second. Yeah, okay, fine. <laughs> Fortunately, they survived. Uh, think things like that. That, and it just, uh, uh, I think, anytime somebody said silence, you know, um, there's a lot of those. Uh, certain turns of phrase that certain writers use over and over. And it was just like, okay, here's, here's the thing. My, uh, one thing I really enjoyed that I found is in Hulk stories, there's that panel from the very first Hulk story where uh, Bruce Banner's got his lab coat flying open. He's illuminated from behind by like the gamma bomb going off. He's just put pushed Rick Jones into the trench and he's got this like screaming expression on his face. And 
anytime anybody draws the Hulk's origin, they have to draw that panel. Like that is right. that is the thing that they draw over and over and over. And I, I think I found like 35 examples of that. Uh, just everybody loves drawing that image. One of my favorite passages in the book is in the X-Men section where you're talking about Dazzler and all the musicians, fictional and uh, real, that flood Marvel Comics. And then, in fact, you know, like I never even think about Rick Jones as a musician sometimes. I forget that that's a thing. Yep. <laughs> he he really was for a long time. We haven't seen him play music in a while, but he's he's had a very eventful life. You know, I want to get back to that idea of gatekeeping. And, you know, early on in your book, you talk about the only type of gatekeeping that should be are the folks who keep the gates wide open. And I was really delighted in your point of view. And I'm curious how you came to this warm and inviting uh, mind space with comics. I mean, all of my happiest times with comics have been times of people like letting me in on something or showing me something or going like, you know what you would love. You take, take a look at this. This, this might be your thing. That's, that is a way that comics bring people together. And it's where a lot of my happiest moments have come from. And I want more people to have moments like that. This notion that you have in the book about uh, when you when anyone jumps into comics, you never know everything. So even these like longtime diehard comic book fans, when they started, they started not knowing the entire story, and it's a lot of catch up. And I think that fear of not knowing everything or where to start prevents so many people from trying out comic books. And I feel like if you get all the marbles into those hands, we have a friend uh, named. <laughs> We're calling her I'm, out. I'm calling her out. Who doesn't particularly like superhero stories because she feels intimidated by the vast unknown that she'll never know. And I think what you do so well is saying like, well, that's everyone's case. You just have to, you just have to accept not knowing. Or love not knowing. Or love not knowing. Where did that trigger for you? Oh, just again, like I've had so many wonderful, like, oh, I get it now moments. And you can't get to those like, oh, I get it now moments without going through the the what moments. <laughs> um, and there's always going to be those. And that is a hurdle. But if you if you understand, like, there's, there's actually a reward on the other side of that. Like, you will get through that and then suddenly it gets really, really fun. And I want to make make it clear that, like, it's it's not all obstacles like this is this is not something that is going to like drain your pockets to keep making you miserable and confused uh you mentioned in the beginning of the book that you come from a background of writing about pop music and do you think that there's anything about being a pop music writer that primed you uniquely to write this story about comics huh i don't know uh that's a good question i in in pop music in the last 15, 20 years, um, thanks to, you know, Kelly Fasane and Robert Christgau and a, a number of other writers, there, there's this kind of uh, movement called poptimism, mm-hmm. which is like, no, let's actually look at giant pop hits. Let's take them as what they are. Let's figure out what is so pleasurable about them. 
instead of this kind of tall poppy syndrome of like, oh, it, it's popular, so it must not be any good. Like that, that's that doesn't make any sense. You, you right. don't necessarily have to like it, but you need to figure out what about it is meaningful and compelling. And in doing that, you can also figure out like why art that is meaningful and compelling to you is that. Uh, and I, that, that means a lot. And that maybe that's something that I brought over to uh, the way I read about comics. On the other hand, you know, the comics that I have mostly written about before this are very often like, pretty difficult, arty comics. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, what we think of as pretty difficult, arty comics sometimes have enormous passionate readerships. So uh, there's there's not an easy way to uh, look at something and go like, oh, this is just uh, for a tiny, tiny cult of people like me. Well, maybe, maybe so, and maybe it's not. Yeah, we find on our podcast when we cover a comic book couple that's uh, maybe a little more obscure than, say, you know, Superman and Lois Lane, that the response you get from those folks is more intense. Like if you write about Usagi Ojimbo and Lady Tomoe, you're going to get some heated response. Yeah. Uh, what One thing that I – a connection I made between talking about music and talking about comics – is that they're both genres in which knowing more about the creator actually enriches your reading experience. I think sometimes during like maybe novels, like you you um, just take the book as it is, where I feel like with comics, you, by knowing the context, the historical context, the, the context of the writer, that actually enriches your reading experience. Do you feel like this is the case? Yeah, it absolutely can be. I mean, one interesting thing about comics is that the culture around it makes the lines between the people who make it professionally and the people who just enjoy a lot of it. Those lines are really permeable. A lot of people came up through fan culture before they started making comics themselves. And you you go to conventions, you can meet these people face to face and talk to them and drink with them and everything. Uh, Sometimes, sometimes creators want their privacy, which is a whole other thing, which is great. But there's a lot of the sense that like, you know, a fan might be a few good homemade comics away from being somebody who is part of the part of the giant group of people who are who are producing this culture and that's that's special that's something that you know you also kind of have in common with some kinds of music like the punk world especially not quite as much pop but you know the in the punk rock world and indie rock world the people who are on the stage are not so far away from the people who are off the stage. And those, those positions can change. Lisa is all about the text. And I tend to be all about what the creation story. Mm -hmm. And I find that sometimes I get caught up in the creation story and the behind the scenes of it. And I distract myself from the product that I should be, that that I originally fell in love with. Uh And what I like about all the Marvels, especially when you are tackling the early days of the creation of the Fantastic Four, is you acknowledge, you know, the the great creator debate that will never end. Right. Uh, but from your point of view, you know, all the Mar- Marvels' point of view, it's about finding 
it's about approaching this as the great American novel. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about your own struggles with recognizing the, the, the complicated creation of the Marvel Universe, but then also separating that from the beautiful thing that was created. Yeah, uh, that, again, excellent question. It took a while to settle on the idea of like, no, I really just want to focus on like the story as a story. There is so much there in the story. And what's in the story like is obviously affected by the circumstances of its creation, the creative circumstances and the economic circumstances. Like it, This is a story that has been driven by commercial considerations from the beginning at every turn, like, isn't this just something that's supposed to make money? Like, yeah, of course, like it's all, like it, it's all for that. It is all a trick to make money. That doesn't mean that it's not meaningful and powerful and fun. Uh, and maybe sometimes there's stuff that comes out of it that makes it more meaningful or powerful or fun because you're chasing dollars. You're also chasing people's hearts. Uh, the story behind the story is tricky because we can't always know it. There's a lot of stuff that makes good stories, but when you look into it, it's a little more complicated than that. And what's on the page is what's on the page, and it stays on the page. And I, yeah, separate, separating the the story behind the creation of it from the thing, like I can't, I can't do that completely. <laughs> they do bleed into each other, but. I like the story for what it is, and the real world history you know, has also been covered really well. Like that that Sean Howe book, Marvel Comics: The Untold Story, yeah. is uh, that's a terrific book. Um, and I was just interested in in the thing itself, and getting lost in the story. Like, that is a thing that I love when it happens, mm. and it doesn't really happen often enough for me. It happens occasionally. I. I uh, there there are moments where I'm just like turning the pages, can't wait to see what happens next. And those are my favorite moments. Yeah, I mean, it's something that thanks to Lisa, I've had to practice. Right. You know, like I'm becoming a different reader through our relationship. And I'm rediscovering that thing I had as a kid where it's like, well, now let me treat these people as people, these characters <laughs> right. as people. And it's been so much fun. But I've had to work at it. My issue with going to the story beyond the story is like, where does that stop? You know what I mean? Where you go like, well, if I'm taking in consideration where the writers are coming from, then I also have to take in consider and the artists, obviously, then I have to take into consideration where, where, um, you know, the printing process, like the printing, pro the, the printing process has a lot to do with the way that we consume the story. Heck yeah. yeah. And one of my favorite chapters is the chapter about the master of Kung Fu. Oh yeah. And you included a lot of the material from the letters portion and the back matter and you yeah. make the readers almost like a character in the comic where they're this like all seeing, like they're like a ghost of wokeness's future. Like <laughs> you are going to regret coloring the comics this way or writing the comics this way. Yeah. And now like when we, as uh, comic book culture is moving more towards trades and moving more towards digital, we are starting to lose letters pages and lose some of that back matter. And, um, like, and there's no other art form where you get like the product and the criticism in one like convenient package. Yeah. And do you feel like there's something that we're losing by not having 
the letters, pages in our in our issues? And do you find other runs of comics where the letters portion is equally as compelling as the letters portion in Masters of Kung Fu? Yeah, I mean, so it's worth noting that when I was rereading Master Kung Fu for this, I was mostly rereading it in the omnibuses that came out, which include include the letters. Mm-hmm. Like oh, the, do they? the letters pages are in there. And oh, wow. there are a lot of archival reproductions of comics that are including letters now because they're you know, acknowledging like this was part of the package. This was part of the thing. It's really interesting to read, you know, Captain America comics from the early 70s, like the political debates just never end. And they are being hashed out in the letter columns every month. It's hawks and it's doves and it's people critiquing the way that the story is being told. And yeah, I mean, that's, that's all right there. Uh, you see, I think Frank Miller has a letter in an early issue of The Cat. Uh, Frank Miller actually wrote a bunch of letters in, in the mid-70s, like before he was drawing comics. Uh, you know, obviously like the Fantastic Four and Amazing Spider-Man, the first 10 years of those, there are so many people who wrote letters to those who went on to make comics themselves. You know, George R.R. R. Martin's first byline was, you know, letter in Fantastic Four when he was like 15 years old mm-hmm. and only had one R in his name. And Roy Thomas is writing in and Jerry Conway is writing in and all of these people who went on to be, you know, people who wrote the Fantastic Four, people who were Marvel editors and editors-in-chief. And the discussions of the comic happening in the comics themselves, like the overt criticism and the creators having to respond to that criticism on the page in the thing itself. That's really, really special. I love it when reprints include those. I think more of them are including them now. I miss the kind of old fashioned letters pages. Um, and there's still some of them. The Immortal Hulk actually had, you know, an extended letters section in just about every issue with Al Ewing, like responding to, people's comments and really, really interesting. It takes a lot of time. It's something that, you know, people don't necessarily get paid to do as editors or creators. And so it can, it can be an addendum, but uh, you know, there are other comics that have done outside Marvel, lots of stuff with letter columns. Sex criminals had a hugely long letter section, every issue that was just, you know, people pouring their hearts out. Uh, Cerebus, a few decades ago, the the letters column could be almost as long as the the story itself. And that there were just pages and pages and pages of people like responding and processing at every issue. That's, that's a special thing about this medium. I love it. Yeah. I mean, what, what I love about that master of Kung Fu section is how it really reveals this, how, how, readers have always approached comics as uh, a conversation and have always wanted to offer their input into what is being done. And I think we think a lot about modern fan culture and its toxicity as something new and ownership, fan ownership is something new, but it's always been there. We've always wanted to debate these things with our favorite creators. Yeah, that's true. And also, Creators have always craved feedback and very often they've internalized it. Like, okay, we got this wrong. We want to get it right. Oh, you like this? You want more of this? Oh, yeah, we can do that. 
<laughs> and you get to see that happening in real time. Uh, so in the process of writing this book, um, you've talked about how uh, you would hit strides where it would all become a blur. Lisa talking about <laughs> film festivals also reminds me like when you know we go to Sundance or Fantastic Fest right, right. and you watch like nine films in a day, good luck remembering one of them. Uh, and, and so I'm wondering what this book has done to you and your relationship with comics going forward. <laughs> you know, I thought when I was finished that I was going to be really burned out on Marvel for a while or just really burned out on comics for a while. Like, you know, I've got a giant pile of prose books that are stacking up here. I uh, should really get into reading stuff with lots of little words and no pictures. And I think the day I turned in the final corrections to the book, I was like, all right, Time to take a little break. Once I go to the comic book store, ooh, there's a new issue of Hellions out. Okay, I gotta get that. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm I'm a lifer. There, I definitely overindulged. There were definitely some times when it was like, oh, okay, yeah, I just read what 15 issues of Maverick, and I don't remember a single one of them. Mm. Um, but then there were days when it like. You know, reading some series, you know, the Mark Runewald Captain Americas or whatever. And I was like, I've never read these before. These are so good. Can I, can I, do I, can I stay up for another hour and maybe read, read a few more? No, I should go to bed. I should go to bed. Well, and you also talk about how it sort of changed your philosophy with, you know, yeah, there's bad comics. I'm reading some bad comics here. But boy, I like how this one thing is being handled, or I love how this bad comic perfectly expresses this creator mm. as a creator. Yes. Uh, and oh that God. is my philosophy. Like I I I I joke about this, but I also mean it. Like I stopped disliking comics and movies several years ago because <laughs> I can find something good in everything. Yeah, and that that happened to me too. Um, and it's kind of Stockholm syndrome. <laughs> you know, it, it was it was kind of a, a uh, defense mechanism to make sure I didn't tear my eyes out. But at the same time, you know, last week I was talking to somebody uh, who said like US one. Did you read US one? I was like, yes, I read US one. NFL Super Pro. How about NFL Super Pro? Did you read that? Yes, I read NFL Super Pro. And as a matter of fact, there's an mm -hmm. issue of NFL Super Pro near the end where there's a parody of the mythopoetic men's movement of the early 90s. And you're just not going to find that in a good comic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I love this idea also of people testing you. Like, you know, <laughs> did you read US 1? <laughs> yes, I read US 1. Yeah. Uh, there were a lot of people who have had questions about the kind of marginal cases like Micronauts. Like, yes, Micronauts. Yeah. Godzilla. Yes, Godzilla. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's actually funny because when Lisa and I were listening to the audio book uh, in the car as we were driving back and forth from Baltimore Comic Con this weekend, uh, <laughs> you get to that point where you're talking about the rules and I go like, but did he read Godzilla? And then you answered, <laughs> he did I did read Godzilla. Yes. And the villain was Brad the whole time. <laughs> In a few other interviews, um, they asked you about the final chapter with your son Sterling. And I okay. feel like that's a spoiler. And I know that you don't believe in spoilers. But <laughs> like to me, part of the pleasure was that discovery in the final chapter. Mm -hmm. um, 
but I think about you like writing this book and doing this project at this specific time in your life of like midlife and fatherhood. Mm-hmm. And you and this entire book is filtered through who you are right now. And I I, I wonder, like, do you think if you read this, if you wrote this book and did this project at any other point in your life, like, would it have turned out differently and how? Oh, gosh. Um, I'm sure it would have been very, very different. I don't know how. Um, mm-hmm. I think I was much angrier and much more uh, prone to finding flaws and amplifying them when I was younger. Um, I have no idea what I'm going to be like 10 years from now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is, you know, in, in a lot of ways, yeah, this is a fatherhood book. This is a, here is the culture that is important to me. And I want you to find culture that's important to you. And I don't care if it's this or not, but mm-hmm. here, here is how I love the stuff I love. Um, I hope you get to love something this way too. Hmm. Like yeah, I'm a, that's mm-hmm. sorry. Go. On. I like I personally am like an obsessive seeker of life lessons. Like I'm always trying to take like what somebody's saying about something specific, and I'm like, now I'm going to apply this to my whole life. Where you talk right. about like hack work is life. I'm like, oh, that's so true. Um, live <laughs> like failed experiments are not ruinous. And um, and have you found? standing atop the mountain of all of the marvels that your perspective on life has changed at all? Huh. I mean, the thing that was the biggest life perspective changer for me was like having to write the book twice. Like wrote it the first time felt like, you know, I threw myself into this this is the thing I can do. This is my, this is my magnum opus for right now. And then realizing like, no, this sucks. This Mm -hmm. is, this is not good. This is not communicating the way that you wanted to communicate. And so this is a little digression, but it's going someplace. Um, I have a comics tattoo. It is a tattoo of the brick from crazy cat. Oh, Uh, awesome. Are you both familiar with Crazy Cat? Uh, I, I am. Lisa hasn't partaken yet. Okay. So Crazy Cat was a comic strip by George Harriman that ran from 1913 to 1943. Uh, it was never very popular, but comics artists tend to think it is the best comic strip ever. The premise of it is that Crazy is a cat who, a cat of sort of indeterminate gender who loves Ignatz the Mouse, uh, Ignatz hates crazy. Ignatz throws a brick at crazy. Crazy takes the brick as a sign of love and office a pup who is the dog who loves crazy drags Ignatz the mouse off to jail. This was the plot every day for 30 years. Uh, it's amazing. And so <laughs> my tattoo is the brick original printed size, which is to say very, very tiny in flight in the middle of my back as a reminder of a really good thing to remember as a writer, which is that the message sent is not necessarily the message received. So (laughs) putting something like this out into the world, I can't control how it is received, 
but I can try to make it something that is special in itself. And then that goes double for something like this that is a book of criticism, basically, or art criticism. It has to be something that doesn't just illuminate its subject, but is a pleasure to read on its own. And what I wrote the first time I wrote the book was not that. It was just me talking to the inside of my head. And I got back the word that like this, no, this does not work. You really need to throw it out. You start over. And that wrecked me for a while. I just absolutely could not. I, I knew it wasn't working. Couldn't figure out how. And in figuring out how, in figuring out what I want to communicate and how I want to communicate and what experience I wanted people who were reading the book to have and how I could try to help them have that experience. That's where I learned a lot. I think. Can I ask what, um, finally clicked on what, before you started the second you know, <laughs> draft or the, the redo, what clicked for you? I mean, it, it wasn't even like an aha moment. It was trying a bunch of stuff and seeing what worked. And finally, the one thing that I do think actually did help crystallize it was the metaphor of being a tour guide of mm. this is a territory that I've covered every square foot of. And some people have covered some of it and some people have not seen it at all. And what can I do to not not be the kind of tour guide who's like, okay, that's the highlight and that's the highlight and that's the highlight and now you've seen the highlights, but who can say like, okay, here's a path you might want to go down. Here's a trailhead. Here's a thing that you might want to explore. Um, let people have the tools to find their own way around. And once I kind of, once that kind of idea crystallized in my head, that made it considerably easier to do what I wanted to do. To me, what I think makes all of the Marvels so good is that it doesn't just get me, the reader, curious and excited about Marvel comics. It makes me, the reader, curious and excited about you. And there are so many, there are so many books about climbing Mount Everest, you know, and Nobody would read those books if they were like, hey, on this left turn, there's a rock that's kind of shaped like a triangle. Uh, like, we're like, no, where did you eat the stick of butter and how did it make you feel? <laughs> and like, and I, I love the bookend of you going like, this is my life philosophy. This is my life philosophy applied to my son, who is now bringing his own perspective to the fore. And now you're learning from, from him in a way. Yeah. And, um, and did that ever in the process of your writing, like ever make you feel vulnerable or seen in, in a way that you didn't anticipate? Huh. Um, I don't know about scene because scene doesn't happen until you know it gets out into the world. Right, um, right, right, of course. But uh, yeah, uh, 
honestly, like that that last the personal chapter, it was in there from the beginning. Like the plan was like, okay, bring it around to myself. But I tend to be very wary of myself as a subject. I I don't think I'm necessarily that interesting. But also I know that my voice is there all the way. Like it's it's me talking and I have to give people a sense of like, okay, who who is this talking and how much do I trust them? And how much do I know that, okay, this this person is not me and here's what we don't have in common and this is what I have to watch out for. Uh, so yeah, there's, there's a vulnerability in that. Um, I'm not sure how well I navigated that. I tried, but yeah. Well, uh, as you wait to be seen, I think it's safe to say that, you know, Lisa and I and myself really did feel seen in your book. Mm-hmm. Thank um, you. I, you know, I'm prone to hyperbole, so you can take this and dismiss it uh, however you like. But I, I read a lot of books about books. I read a lot of books about comic books. And this is the first one where I felt like it was like a heroic action of fandom. Because <laughs> it was so um, passionate and it was so, you know, obviously investigative and it comes with a lot of criticism. You, you know, you, you state that you're not, um, this is not an endorsement of the creators of these comics or the attitudes of these comics of when they were written. Um, but you, you also show the reader um, that comics are for everyone. Superhero comics are for everyone that you lay a pathway to the curious and the resistant that I think is very appealing. And as much as I want to give this book to my geek friends uh, or my superhero friends, I want to give it to my friends who are, are more obsessed with indie comics or who don't think comics are an an art form or my father. I want to give it to my father, (laughs) the Uh ultimate justification. So that's a long way of just saying thank you. Thank you so much. That's really, really kind of you. Um, And Douglas, you know, as we wrap up here, is there anything that we haven't talked about regarding all of the Marvels that you would want to get out there into the world uh, and discussed? <laughs> I I leave that up to you. Thank you so much, though. All right, fabulous. Uh, well, then let's let's let our listeners know where they can track you down. The book is on sale now. You can find it wherever fine comic books or books are sold. But where can they continue this conversation with you online? Uh, I'm at douglaswolk.com, and uh, I'm also Douglas Wolk on Twitter. And also I have a podcast that will be coming back in just a few weeks. It took a little break while the book was coming out, which is The Voice of Latveria, which is at voiceoflatveria.com. It is nominally a uh, Cold War era shortwave radio newscast from the fictional Eastern European state run by Dr. Doom, and more actually a weekly conversation about some comic story that Dr. Doom has appeared in. And more genuinely even than that really me and the guest every week talking about whatever they feel like talking about are you the most fun person ever because i submit that you are 
So fun. I, I, I'm kind of not, but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, Douglas, thank you so much for taking the time so early out there on the West Coast uh, to chat with us. We really, really appreciate it. And we had a great time ourselves. Thank you so much. See, isn't he like the nicest guy on the planet? I do feel a little self-conscious how I kind of sprung it on him that I'm like, actually, I I read this book and became more <laughs> curious about you as an individual. And I was surprised that he didn't know that that was what his book was about. Mm, yeah, I mean, but I think that is something that we encounter quite a bit in these conversations that we have with creators is sometimes we have a totally different idea of what their story is, what their novel is, what their comic is than they do. And both are valid. I think it's kind of ironic because... So much of the story of all of the Marvels, you know, as a, you know, as a book that he wrote, but also as a concept, is that we as fans cannot remove the creators from the creation. We reach a certain age and we go like, oh, well, the reason Chris Claremont writes this way is because he has the mind of an actor. And look at, you know, you can see the relationship between Stanley and Jack Kirby in this issue and like that kind of stuff. But, 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 but we, you know, as we talk to him about it, you know, you, like you have started to do that, but that is not your natural instinct. Whereas like over the 30 years that I've been reading comic books, you know, I, I think as I told him that sometimes I put too much emphasis on what's going on in the creator's head. And that's a conversation that we have off the mic all the time before we record our sessions regarding comic book couples. Yes. I was annoyed how much the name Kevin Smith came (laughs) up in our quiver conversation while in session. Yes. Yes. Where I feel like when we are discussing the book, we have to take the circumstances in the book as fact. Right, yeah. And I and I also think that that is a healthier way to read. Yeah, but I would say that, you know, through our marriage, through our relationship, you have developed a little more interest in knowing the creator side of things, and I have developed an interest in rejecting the creator side of things, that we are both becoming a new type of reader because of each other. I think that they are two... Um, two conversations that comic book fans are always having. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think that they sometimes fail to acknowledge which conversation they want to have. Mm. And so mm. you see a lot of conflict between, like whether it be on Twitter or just like overhearing two fans chit-chat. Or on a podcast. Or on a podcast of two people having two different conversations, one having a conversation about the creators and one having a conversation about the characters as individuals. And um, I think that one thing that I I would love for CBCC to put out into the universe is some kind of code word for, like like how in the wrestling world there's like kayfabe. Uh I wish that there was like a code word for comics where 
there was just a word that says, well, I'm not talking about the creation of <laughs> comics. I'm not talking about the, um, you know, the politics surrounding that individual issue outside of that individual issue. Uh -huh. Like, I'm just talking about the circumstances within as fact. Yeah, the content. Yes, yeah, yes. the content, and, uh, and, and especially in regards to how the characters are behaving. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think the more comics I read, I'm less interested in the plots that the characters are trapped in and more interested in the head spaces that they're trapped in. Yes, yes. Uh, and, and I think that's the genesis of comic book couples counseling. Yeah, um, maybe maybe the word can be like, well, we're in session now. We're in session now. now so we need to get so big as a podcast <laughs> that when we wander into a convention, we could just say to the person who is arguing who did what between Stanley and Jack Kirby, well, I'm in session now and we're talking about Sue and Reed. And then they go, oh, oh, oh okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Excuse Let's just, me. Sorry, I apologize. Yeah, just Sue and Reed. And then we could have the Jack versus Kirby debate, which will never end because as we've talked to with Douglas Voke or Woke, <laughs> as we've talked with Abraham Reisman, as we've talked with uh, uh, Tom Brevoort and Tom Scioli, there's, there's not enough information, like physical actual factual information from that time period to satisfy that answer. And so it's always going to be a question and we'll probably be arguing it in another 50 years. Yeah. It, I mean, I feel like in, um, well, no, I was about to say like, since there is no answer, maybe it's just time to put that discussion to bed. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, I think but, it's impossible, but I think that, um, Obviously, humanity has a fascination with unanswerable questions, uh -huh. and that's why they keep coming up. But to get back to all of the marvels, the thing that I love the most about this book are all the little connections that he makes between stories, whether that's the various bands that fictional and real that keep popping up throughout the Marvel Universe, how he follows the strands that connects everything and how he positions the Marvel universe as the great American novel. Like I love thinking about these comics in those terms now. And I think that it has infected the way that I read my weekly issues. When I am taking a look at what's going on in this week's Inferno number two, I am thinking about how it's in conversation with the immortal Hulk and uh, you know, the inhumans and, and what have you. My favorite part of all of the Marvels is the way that he describes a lot of the things that people consider like the bugs of comic book writing, mm. like characters never die. Like they refer back to like, you know, events that happened 45 years ago. Mm -hmm. Like everybody should know that as common knowledge. Right. And he gives us the language to, to point to these things and go like, well, to you, these may be bugs, but to me, they are features. Yes, yes, yes. And also this idea that he experienced, which is something that I came to many years ago myself, that even in the bad stuff, the quote unquote bad stuff, there is good stuff and there is value in reading the bad stuff. So when you're reading something or watching something and you're not enjoying it, well, what is in the thing that you're not enjoying that is actually still working somehow? Or the idea that someone in a future storyline yeah. can take that like 
accident of poor writing or whatever. And then change the perspective on it slightly. So now all of a sudden it's this, it's this huge contextualized yeah. um, consequential thing. Al Ewing is the master of that, right? Jonathan Hickman does that really, really well too. Uh, and, and that's the type of thing that really rewards the longtime reader. But also Douglas Wolk is talking about how you don't have to worry about that stuff either. And he really wants to position comic books as this warm and inviting place and that there is a issue out there for you no matter who you are. And that is a celebration um, of curiosity mm -hmm. and really enjoying the feeling of not knowing. Yeah, yeah. Because I think that is actually more true to life than this like isolated novel where you know everything that needs to be known in that particular circumstance. And then when you shut the back cover, it's over. Like whenever you're entering a new room with new characters, they all have these backstories. Like, it, you know, you start a new job in the office right. and you are just like looking at other people who have this entire complete life and going like, who is that person and what powers do they have? Yeah, that, that would be a great way to discuss comics with your friend uh, that we mentioned briefly and, in this and, episode. And bleeped out, and right, bleeped out. I mean, hopefully I bleeped her out. Uh, I promised to bleep her out. I got to find that name. And hopefully I'm not saying that one approach to storytelling is more valuable than the other. I think that it is fun to practice being omnipresent and omnipotent and knowing all of the details, but it's also valuable to practice what life is like, well, which is not knowing. What Douglas is saying is that being omnipresent or omniscient when reading comics is impossible mm -hmm. and you have to get rid of this fear of not knowing if you are going to proceed. That's right, that it's a humbling experience to read a comic because you are always faced with not knowing and not having complete knowledge. Even, and he says like, even after reading every single Marvel comic, he has not absorbed and added right. to his internal database every single detail of the Marvel universe. And I think that's why when I was a kid and I picked up whatever Venom Island issue that was, that when you're a child, your entire life experience is mm. not knowing what's going on, not having a bird's eye view or a God's eye view. So you just go like, okay, well, I don't understand what this means, but I will continue going because I enjoy it. And I approached movies that way. I approached comics that way. I approached life that way as a kid because I had no other choice. But I think when you get a little older and you, if you come to comics later in life, uh, that, not knowing can be a hang up. And mm -hmm. it's just a good reminder, like it's, it's okay not to know. You'll, you'll catch up. Just like anything, like reading comic books is a practice. And even if you are not fully aware of what you're practicing, you are being changed and you are being influenced. And I think that the way that Douglas Volk articulates that, particularly with the opening of his book, and then uses that as like this bridge to invite people into the rest of his book saying like, hey, 
You're not expected to know or remember any of this. And that's okay. I think that's really special. Do you know what I also think is special, Brad? What's that? What's happening next week? Oh, next week we return and conclude our conversation around Dinah Lance and Oliver Queen discussing the Green Arrow Black Canary Wedding special, as well as the following series, all 14 issues. We were originally going to talk about issues one through four, but that fourth issue ends on a bit of a bummer and we didn't want to end our Green Arrow conversation on a bummer. So we are doing the entire series. Although I got to say, I think those first four issues are the best issues and probably the bulk of our conversation is still going to come from those first four issues. I think that uh, those first four issues do contain the most juicy relationship material. Um, and from that point on, it's plotty plot plot. But that's because there's some important life-changing things <laughs> happening that need to be resolved. We can't just leave Connor in a coma. Yeah, it's a wild comic book. I had so much fun with it. And I am really looking forward to having that conversation. And I'm also super sad about ending our conversation around Dinah and Ollie. But thankfully, their relationship is so messed up, I feel like we can return to them every year. We could do an entire Green Arrow Black Canary spin-off CBCC podcast if we wanted to, I think. I think it's just another testament to how beautiful comic books are. Yeah. Where you can take a couple that, like, I have to admit, I wasn't that curious about going into this sure. uh, this series on them. And now I just do not want to let them go. Yeah, you're so invested. I'm the same way. Uh, but we have to say goodbye to them. And that's going to happen next week. And then after that, we are going into another comics universe that is not DC, that is not Marvel. And we'll be covering a comic book couple that I don't think you will be expecting at all. And that's very, very exciting and a great way to end the year before we go into our best comics of 2021 episodes and a few other like one pod stands that we have planned. Uh, so yeah, uh, it's going to be a heck of a conclusion to 2021 for CBC. So we're leaving this episode with the specter of unknowing, <laughs> uh, which is very scary. Happy Halloween. Spooky. Although we're dropping this episode on the 30th, and how many of you are actually going to be listening on the 31st? So it's probably November while you're listening to this episode. Uh, so uh, it's noir Vember. <laughs> Misogyny, coffee in the face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's plenty of that to go around to. Uh, watch the big heat, great Lee Marvin villain role. Though, if we want to actually participate in Noir Vember, we first have to get eight more Tom Cruise <laughs> movies under our belts. So, Brad, where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? Uh, you can send your words of affirmation to me as well as your Tom Cruise ranking to at MouthDork on all social medias. If you have words of affirmation for our logo, you can send them to Aaron Prescott at A Cool Hand Fluke. And if you have some words of affirmation for our radical banner art and show poster, send them to Karen Charm at Karen underscore X-Men fan. Lisa, where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? I am always accepting words of affirmation at Sidewalk Siren on Instagram and Twitter. If you'd like to spend more quality time with us, you can subscribe to us on Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, Google, and Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to get exclusive, mm. you can join our Patreon. 
where you'll get more content, including weekly bonus episodes. And a possible Tom Cruise total ranking. Uh, if you'd like to reach out and touch us electronically, you can email the podcast, cbccpodcast at gmail.com. You can visit our website, comicbookcouplescounseling.com, or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at cbccpodcast. You can give us the gift of five stars on Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to do an active service... Why not write a review of the show while you're there? We are fluent and receptive in all five love languages. It really warms our hearts and helps the pod. So until next time, friends, keep your love tank full. And your psychic rapport open. Doopy doopy.